You can now buy an orange that has no vitamin C in it because it's produced in such a way that doesn't allow it to. The genetics have changed. I think the nutrient density of food because of the soil health just has changed so much. Hello and welcome to Ducks in the Pond, brought to you by the Rural Podcasting Co. I'm Kirsten Diprose. You've probably heard about soil carbon and all the talk about the future of carbon credits. So will we be farming carbon in the future alongside sheep and crops? Will we be measuring our soil carbon and other forms of natural capital like water and trees to have to show the bank when we want a loan? Well, I can't answer that. No one can just yet. But perhaps the better question is, what can you do now? Well, you might consider building a soil carbon project. And so my next guest for this two-part collaboration series is Sarah Winnie, who is actually doing one on her farm in Western Victoria right now. So if you're interested in why you might want to build a soil carbon project and want to know how to get started, this episode is for you. Now, Sarah lives at Chatsworth House, which is a beautiful historic bluestone homestead that Queen Victoria's brother used to use as his country residence when he, you know, popped over to Australia from time to time. There are servants' quarters and everything. To be clear, Sarah doesn't have any servants. She moved there in 2019 with her husband Tom and their three children. It's a pretty awesome house. But what's just as interesting is what they're doing on the land around it, using multi-species pasture and the principles of regenerative agriculture to build soil carbon. I love that it's a property so steeped in history with new owners who, while enjoying that history, are really thinking about the future of farming. So let's meet Sarah Winnie. So I grew up in Western Victoria, so just north of Lake Folak, went to Alora Primary School, had, yeah, great childhood on a sheep and cropping farm. Couldn't really have asked for anything more and always uh, loved being out in the paddocks and, yeah, horse riding, picnics, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Did you picture yourself as a farmer back then? No, I didn't. No, I sort of went to school and boarding school and loved the maths and science and, yeah, really didn't sort of see ag as a career for me. Yeah. And actually got into environmental engineering after I left school. And then it wasn't until my gap year when I kind of realized I I ended up in more of a a farming role. um, And yeah, realized that I did actually like ag and I did know something and that maybe it was a career or something I'd be interested in studying. So then I went from there and off to uni, Melbourne Uni Ag Science and Commerce there. Isn't it weird how you didn't really consider ag as a career for a little while there? Why do you think that is? I don't know. I always loved being on the farm and I was always very involved and mum and dad were great at, you know, there was no, well, you're a girl, you're in the house, nothing like that. We were all out and about doing what we were keen on doing. Yeah, I guess I was reasonably academic and I just kind of thought I'd head down that path. It just didn't really cross my mind. And so with environmental engineering, did you end up working in that space at all? No, no, I literally got into it after I finished year 12 and deferred for a year and then went off and worked for a gap year. And then, yeah, it was while I was on my gap year, I applied for Ag Science Commerce at Melbourne Uni and got in and and started there. And it was 
Yeah, and I even still at uni, I loved the sort of ag industry and knew I wanted to be in that, but wasn't sure how that would play out, whether maybe I'd use the commerce degree more. Then sort of when I got towards the end of my degree, decided that I did want a job in in the country and ended up with NAB in their agribusiness program, which was a great sort of three or four years that I had with them. And it allowed me to live out in the country where my now husband was living. So once I'd sort of finished with NAB and my husband Tom and I were looking for sort of that next move, we ended up at a property called Mount Hamilton, just south of Naran Naran, about 40 minutes from where we are now. Beautiful property, loved it there. And that's where we had our three children and we were sort of 50% cropping and 50% livestock on that property and farming for a while in conjunction with my parents and brother. And yeah, we then went through succession and and we can get to how we ended up at Chatsworth. But yeah, we loved our time at Mount Hamilton, and but it was quite a, a different farming system to where we are today. How did the succession go? You don't have to answer this, you know, answer it however you like, but how did that succession process go? Yeah, it went really well. We were very lucky to uh, have a lot of family support and Yeah, I think the best thing we did was getting outside facilitators into regular family meetings and just starting that discussion early, working out what everyone, you know, enjoyed doing, where they wanted to go, and then working out the best way to make that happen. So, yeah, it was just all about communication. You know, there were times it wasn't super easy, but it it was definitely always, yeah, it was all about sort of the communication and those facilitators I couldn't recommend highly enough. Yeah, I hear a lot about that, that getting an outside facilitator is really worthwhile, you know, even in the most high-functioning, high-communicative families, I think it's it's a great idea. So tell me about Chatsworth House and I think for anyone listening and who, who doesn't know it, you have to describe it because it's truly beautiful and it's a piece of Australia's history really. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful place. And when we first looked over the property, we looked over the farm three or four times before we came to the house and you'll get an idea of why that is in a moment. But we really loved the land and, you know, the fact that it was really a grazing property because even though we were cropping and grazing at our previous property, we have always been more passionate about livestock, which is was part of the decision leaving the sort of cropping country to the croppers and getting a livestock block and the fact that it's it's all in one it's about 6,000 acres of in one block with beautiful Hopkins River coming through it rolling hills lots of red gum it's trees throughout the paddocks it's it's just got a really lovely feel and it's quite different to a lot of properties in the area people don't really expect to sort of find the steep hills around the creeks and waterways that you do here and yeah, I think from when we first sort of looked at it, we just really felt connected to the landscape here and felt like we could make a, a go of this and that it is just such a special place. And the house itself is very interesting. Like it's got a royal connection, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Everyone loves to talk about that. <laughs> but <laughs> I love it. I think it's so cool. My story about it, and you could tell me if this is true, is that it was Prince Albert's, Victoria's brother's resident. Is that right? Or did I make that up? No, I think you've got it right. I always thought it was Prince Alfred, but I better do my homework. We've got a a bust of him in the hallway from when he visited, I think. So the house was built in 1860 by John Moffat, and 
it was one of the original sort of blue stone homesteads around the countryside. It's stunning and it's, you know, it was built for a certain era when there was a lot more people to run around <laughs> managing these big houses. But, yeah, we're very lucky. People have been in it over the last sort of 20 to 30 years and kept it quite livable and enjoyable. And, yeah, so it's it's great to be here as a family. I think it's really the first time it's had a family living in it permanently for over 30 years. So I think it's good for the house and we're having a bit of fun with it. Look, it's a bit much, but, you know, you've just got to work with what you've got and enjoy it. And it's best when it's filled with family and friends it's a great house. It's, it would be a challenge as well, I would imagine. Just <laughs> you'd have to choose which rooms you're using in order to keep it warm, I'd imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And as a good friend of mine said, every time you've got people over, you've got to make sure you go to a different room so you use it properly. So we're trying. <laughs> we'll move on from the house because while it's beautiful and, and you run weddings and events on the property too, this podcast is really all about how to build a soil carbon project. And and I know that's something you're passionate about. So tell me about what you and your husband were thinking when you first bought the property and what you wanted to do with it. Yeah, so I guess uh, we bought the property at the end of 2019 and it was probably a few years before that. We started on a journey of learning which sort of culminated in the purchase of this property and we still will always be learning. But if I step back in time to after our second child was born, I went on a journey of realising I was addicted to sugar. So I went through the I Quit Sugar sort of program and, yeah, got a lot out of that and opened my eyes to gut health. And and then after our third child was born, sort of dug into that research a lot more. At, At the same time, I was kind of starting to explore the concept which you know, is not earth shattering, but the fact that the soil and the land is a farmer's main asset and that, you know, we really need to respect that. And so I was starting to learn about soil. I mean, I, I learned all about soil at uni, but it was mainly the physical and chemistry around the soil. So I was really fascinated by the biology and the soil and how that interacted as well. So, and it was interesting, the gut health and the soil health race research sort of came to a moment where I went, oh, wow, the gut biome and the soil biome are so similar in concept and theory and really interconnected. So from there, we started trying to really farm in a way that respected that and improve was improving our soil health. And we started trialing a few things at our other property in the livestock side of things. But I guess the reason one of the reasons for leaving the cropping country for the for the croppers was that we just felt like we could make more of an impact and farm in this way better with livestock and there are a lot of people farming with soil health at the front of their mind in cropping and doing an amazing job but we just felt like you know livestock was where we were at at that point in time so we just decided that Chatsworth House was a great fit for us and we could really build on what we were already learning and make Chatsworth House just an amazing property to be, which is still a work in progress, but we're getting there. So what was the plan or what is the plan? Because obviously you're you're in the middle of it right now, but where do you want to take the, the property? Is it regenerative ag? Like, can you describe what you're trying to do there? Yeah, well, I think when we first got to Chatsworth House, we decided that we, Tom and I didn't want to be the ones to hold 
back the potential of the property. And so we've done a bit of work on ourselves and also on the strategy and vision for our business here. So our purpose that we've come up with is bringing together people, plants and animals for a better future, which I think shows how we really feel like it's all interconnected. And so that we've got so many big ideas, but at the moment it's about different aspects of the farm. So it's about improving the perenniality of the pasture, getting more diverse species out there to increase that resilience of the system and build the soil health and the soil carbon. It's about planting trees, getting better shelter for livestock, biodiversity corridors, uh, fencing off waterways. It's about having a farming system that's um, always increasing in flexibility so that we could be more adaptive to the changing climate and not as reliant on feeding out over those summer months, which is, you know, a stress, very much a work in progress. We're, we're not perfect by any means, but we're trying our best. And yeah, we can already see a lot of the pastures we have improved are really taking hold and um, it's all sort of coming together. Yeah. It's nice to sort of see your paddocks when when I drive by. Of course, we're in the same district and it looks different to other properties. You know, right now the canola is up really high on, on a lot of people's properties and that's obviously a cropping thing, but the pasture as well looks different where you are because you've got multiple species in there. And so you can sort of see different and sometimes I like you can see little flowers and can you tell me about a, a, a bit about that? Yeah, well, I guess with the pasture systems where with the new pastures we're sowing down and even with the existing pastures, we're trying to sort of use our grazing management as a tool to to improve them over time. But we have sown down some multi-species annual crops and then and then eventually in perennial pastures. So we've got your standard sort of species that you see around the district, your phalaris, coxfoot, fescue, clover type things. But we're also adding in some other species such as plantain, chicory, lucerne into the perennial mix. And with the annual crops, that, that gets a little bit more exciting in that sort of build-up phase to sowing a perennial. We've got all sorts of things in there. The really cool things are sunflowers and buckwheat and things like that, but also turnips and rape and a whole heap, a whole mix. And it's all about trying to sort of emulate that natural sort of grassland system, which, you know, you never see a monoculture in nature. So it's about trying to get that diversity or working together, get the um, quorum sensing happening in the soil and that building those fungi and mycorrhizal networks under the soil. And are you grazing them now already? Like are the cows eating that? Yeah, so we've got sheep and cattle and, yeah, no, all the pastures have sort of got to earn their keep. It's all They've got to be grazed throughout the year. Right at this point of year is a bit tricky because we're lambing at the moment, so there is a bit of set stocking that happens over lambing, but after lamb marking we sort of put the mobs back together and start rotating them around again. And the cattle that we have uh, move around the property as well. So we need to nurture our newer pastures, but they're all in the system. Yeah. So given we're talking about a soil carbon project, measurement is always or usually part of that. Where did you start to be able to tell whether what you're doing is effective in the long run? Yeah, so we're we're still in that process, but with all our research that I talked about earlier, we, I guess just going back a step, we came to the conclusion that 
moving onto a new property that had potentially quite a low base of soil health and soil carbon being in quite a conventional system, which is totally fine. But, you know, we felt like there was a lot of opportunity to improve that. So we did some standard sort of soil testing when we first got here to help work out the best way to sort of get the system going. And then I think we'll probably get into it, but with the actual soil carbon project, we've done our baseline soil testing and we'll be redoing that in another couple of years. So that'll be the big indicator of how well we've been doing what we've been doing. But the initial sort of annual soil testing that we do down to sort of 10 centimetres is is showing improvements. And we're also measuring our the ecological sort of outcome verification program through land to market we're using to measure what we're doing as well. And that is only one year into that, showing it's that it's improving, which is great. Is that a good place to start with baselining your farm? Like if you if you're doing a soil carbon project and you don't know where to start, how do you you know, where, where's a good place? Okay, so bef- there's there's quite a lot of steps before you get to baseline testing. So it would be really great if you could just go and baseline test straight away. But if you don't, you I'd probably stress to everyone that you you first. I mean, the first big thing you've got to do is research, and you've got to work out if it's a good fit for you, if that's the right thing for your farming system and and for your business, and then you've got to work out who is in that area that can help you because it is a big thing to you. You know, unless you're a big corporate that can fund, you know, the back office sort of compliance side of it, you really need a project developer or consultant to help you with that process. So, and if you're doing a soil carbon project through the clean energy regulator, the first step is registering that project. Once it's approved, then you can engage a soil tester to do the soil carbon baseline. But that's all very regimented and controlled and there's a lot of mapping and things that needs to go on and randomised sample sites and stuff before you actually get someone out in the paddock taking cores. Yeah. How time-consuming is it? Well, yeah, in the early stages, so back when we first moved here, it was quite time-consuming. But really just working out who was who in the zoo, what the process was and who we sort of wanted to work with. Once we'd decided on who we were going to work with, it was a matter of yeah, compliance probably and filling in forms and and doing the mapping. So yeah, it definitely it did take time, but you know, I we decided that the the time that it, we needed to invest and the risk return of the project was worthwhile. Yeah, but it it's not something that'll take you 2 seconds. It does take it does take a bit of time not to put anyone off, but you do need to be able to dedicate that. <laughs> Were you able to access any grants or partnerships that made it a little bit more affordable? No, I th- I think with soil carbon projects in particular, it's it's really a private enterprise type thing. If you start accessing, yeah, there's, there's not really any grants that I'm aware of at this point in time. There are different business models with project developers of either paying up front or there are project developers that will pay a lot of the costs up front, but you just need to do due diligence and make sure that you're aware of what the other end of the project looks like when you're going to sell credits, if you're going to sell credits, you know, who gets what at the end of the day, because there's a lot of different models out there sort of in different brokerage type fees at the other end of the project. So you want to make sure you're not leaving too much on the table, but, you know, it. That's when I say that you've got to work out what works for you. You mentioned the risk return assessment that you you did. 
and obviously that's really important with a soil carbon carbon project if you're investing money and time how do you know you're going to get that return particularly when things can be so hard to measure so I don't know when you're answering this you know how do you how do you know what kind of return you're going to to get are you aiming to sell products eventually that you know you can say are net zero or carbon positive even Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I like to think of this space, I'm not going to answer it directly just yet, but I think this in this whole carbon net zero, carbon neutral, you know, talking about emissions, talking about soil carbon, then there's tree carbon. There's so many different parts of the jigsaw that all fit together. So you've got to work out which parts of the puzzle you're working on at that moment. And for us getting to a new property, seeing the potential to improve soil carbon, wanting to do that anyway, it was a no-brainer for us to investigate and go down that track. And the costs involved with the project, we decided we were happy to take as a sunk cost if that was the the end outcome because we felt like we want to improve the soil carbon for our farm production system regardless. And I think that's really key. You don't do a soil carbon project just to do a soil carbon project. You do it because you're building carbon through your farming system and you'll get the profits from building that soil carbon in your farming system, you know, well before you'll probably get carbon credits. Uh, And answering the question more directly, I think, yeah, we're still in a bit of a wait and see pattern where this all takes us. I think the next five or so years, it'll become a lot clearer of what of what supply chains are looking for, what consumer demand, what consumers are willing to pay for with products that are carbon neutral or net zero. And we might end up offsetting some of our things or insetting in. So they're two sort of terms to get your head around down the track, but, you know, offsetting your carbon credits and selling them off farm or insetting them into your own business and using that to then sell carbon neutral or net zero products or something. And we don't have our head around that totally at this point of time, but I'm not sure anyone really does. So we're just sort of working through it, trying to just keep that conversation open, really. It's good to hear that because it shows that you don't need to have all the answers about what the future is going to look like in five or 10 years, but you can still do something now because I feel like that's a major barrier for people you know people just go oh well who knows what what's going to happen so I'll just wait and I would say to that you know everyone's got to go at their own pace that they're comfortable with um but if you are registering a soil carbon project or doing baseline testing with some other program you know it takes time to get results and also I'll speak specifically with the soil carbon project By the time you baseline and then you implement your changing practices to build soil carbon, you know, you're probably a a good five years from actually potentially getting issued with carbon credits. So I think there's there's such a time lag there in that space that, you know, I think the world will look very different in five years' time. So I don't think it's worth spending too much energy trying to have it totally mapped out. That said, I would like to ask the crystal ball question. In your opinion, what do you think there'll be for farmers in that sort of soil space and carbon space in the next five to 10 years? 
Uh, I think there'll be a lot more accountability required by farmers in the near future. So in probably the whole natural capital space, farmers are responsible for a lot of the land looking after and managing a lot of the land area across Australia and across the world. And with everything going on, I, I think it's important that we remember that custodianship that we have. It's not just up to us as farmers, but we are a big part of the picture and a big part of the solution. So I think there's going to be a lot more accountability. There's going to be, you know, carbon accounting and emissions reporting for sure. I mean, that's that's my view, but that's where I see that going. And then with actual carbon credits, it's going to be interesting to see where that ends up. I think the big emitters are needing to offset what they're doing, but you don't want to just offset what big emitters are doing for no net change. So it's all got to be a group approach. And and then there's the whole biodiversity side of things, which is really just starting to emerge as well. So, I mean, I can't really talk to that that much, but I think biodiversity is going to be spoken about more and more. And that's part of that custodianship of the land as as well. We'll wrap up this episode shortly and next episode we'll continue this conversation and really drill into the stages of a soil carbon project, how you implement it, some of the challenges. I'm hoping you'll share some stories with us, Sarah, maybe of some things that haven't gone so well and how you overcame it. But I was sort of just reflecting about how you were an environmental engineer or that's what what you wanted to be. In many ways, you, you sort of are. Yeah, I guess so. I guess I never, I knew I didn't want to always be in the office. I wanted to be out in the landscapes. And yeah, I think you bring up a really good point and I'll kind of just twist it around slightly. And that is that as people and as humans on this earth, we have such an influence over the land around us. But I think it's really important that we remember that we're not separate to that land. We're part of nature. You know, we breathe the oxygen that the trees help create as a very simple thing, you know, and we eat the food that's created on the land. So we're part of this ecosystem as well. And I think people have such an influence on the landscape that we have to be really careful with what our impact is. And I think just bringing that round to remember that it's just also interconnected. And I think that's what's sort of blown my mind over the recent few years with the research, the interconnectedness of the soil health, the microbes in the soil, the plant health, the health of the animals, of the food that we eat. Like, you know, I mean, there's statistics around you can now buy an orange that has no vitamin C in it, you know, because it's produced in such a way that doesn't allow it to. The genetics have changed. I think the nutrient density of food because of the soil health is is just has changed so much. What our grandparents and great-grandparents ate is quite different to what we eat. And so I think the it's just so interconnected. So you can go down so many different rabbit holes, but I think if you just keep your mind open to the fact that there's so much we don't know that we don't know. And that's it for this episode of Ducks on the Pond. This is a two-part series made in collaboration with Chatsworth House Pastoral. The second episode will drop next week where Sarah goes into the process of a soil carbon project So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Sarah for joining us as a guest. You can follow Ducks on the Pond on social media and check out our new website. If you'd like to sponsor an episode to get your brand out there or to collaborate with us, then let us know. Also, if you've ever wanted to start a podcast but don't know how, I have just started a brand new business called Rural Podcasting Co., which can help bring your idea to life 
or help improve an existing podcast. You can head to my website, ruralpodcastingco.com and find out how to contact me there. I'll catch you next time.